NATO leaders met in Lithuania this week. Finland and Sweden are now both in or joining NATO. Ukraine was promised membership or a path to membership inside of NATO. The U.S. proxy war with Russia gets more dangerous with every passing month. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking with Vijay Prashad. Vijay is the executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He's the chief editor of Leftward Books. He's a prolific author, most recently publishing a new book with Noam Chomsky called The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the fragility of U.S. power. Vijay Prashad, welcome back. Thanks a lot, Brian. Great to be with you. Well, we're very honored you were able to join us. I know you're busy. You're in Brazil. Tricontinental Institute research takes you all over the world, in fact. And that's one of the reasons why people should subscribe to the newsletter and to the publication. Anyway, thank you so much for taking time out you know, Vijay, the meeting in NATO, I want to get your thoughts on it, your impression, your take on it. Zelensky wasn't perfectly satisfied. And there's a Washington Post story today that some American national security officials consider him to be a little bit insubordinate for chastising NATO for not giving Ukraine full membership. Of course, the Biden administration, including Biden himself, was arguing that to include Ukraine in NATO right now triggers Article 5, which means all-out war between the U.S., NATO powers, and Russia. I want to talk to you about some of that, but let's take us back seven years. Hillary Clinton, running for president, made a major speech in June 2016, and I want to quote these words because they're very emblematic of the thinking. Here's what she said. Moscow has taken aggressive military action in Ukraine right on NATO's doorstep. And I was like, wow, that's so important to remember because Russia didn't go somewhere. Ukraine didn't go somewhere. Anyway, the presentation is that Moscow is on the march while NATO has expanded so dramatically, doubling in size since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Anyway, I think it's important for our audience, especially people who are watching this for the first time, maybe mainly getting their news from the mainstream media, to put this into some perspective. Well, Brian, it's important to look at the history of NATO, I think, and put NATO itself in its context. NATO was one of many military pacts that the United States created in the 1940s and 1950s, a part of the attempt to encircle the Soviet Union and, of course, encircle China. There was a great anxiety when the People's Republic of China was created in 1949. 
So in fact, this series of different treaty organizations were created almost sequentially. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization led the way in 1949. That was one of the most important Western European countries effectively subordinating their security apparatus to the United States. U.S. bases from Ramstein in Germany all the way down to Italy having a permanent foothold inside Europe with NATO being essentially the vehicle for United States having a military presence in Europe. But then there was the Central Treaty Organization, the so-called Baghdad Pact, which was to bring in the Near Eastern countries, Iraq, Iran at the time, very close U.S. allies, Turkey to some extent, although Turkey looked to Europe for its own security at this period. These countries created the Central Treaty Organization as it were a security pact by the U.S. in the underbelly of the Soviet Union. And then there was the Manila Pact in Manila, Philippines, which created the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization. Now, that was effectively to flank both China and Russia from Japan all the way down to the Philippines. Now, why I put these in context is that it's important to see that these were all about encircling the USSR and the People's Republic of China. When the Soviet Union collapsed, in 1990-91, at the time, you know, already the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, Seattle, and the Central Treaty Organization, CENTO, had been effectively disbanded. Well, in a sense, they had also been disbanded by political events in different parts of the world. But NATO was left standing. NATO was the only one of these major security pacts that outlives the Soviet Union. And NATO not content with whatever security arrangement it had for Western Europe began to expand eastward. It's very interesting that Lithuania, where this current summit was held on July 11th and 12th, Lithuania joins NATO in 2004, one of the first countries, along with the other Baltic states, to join NATO. The Baltic states, by the way, were the last to join the Soviet Union, and they were the first, in a way, to join NATO. This is an interesting development, Brian, because it's now, I think, very well known that when East Germany was going to be absorbed by West Germany, there was a serious discussion between the Soviet Union and the United States government, inclusive of the Federal Republic of West Germany. There was a serious discussion about whether NATO should be allowed to expand beyond Germany's frontiers now that East Germany was going to join up with West Germany to create a unified Germany. The idea was that Germany in total would be part of NATO. But then what happens to countries east of the German border? And there was effectively an agreement between James Baker, the Secretary of State of the United States, and Edward Shevardnadze, who was at the time the foreign minister of the USSR. There was effectively an agreement. There's a piece of paper where they accept this, that the NATO border will not move one inch beyond Germany's eastern border. That agreement is important. So not only did NATO not get disbanded in the post-Cold War era, in fact, disappear into the annals of history along with Seattle and Cento, not only did that not happen, but in fact, NATO started to expand and expand quite vigorously, absorbing a number of countries, as I said, the Baltic states, which 
border Russia were absorbed into NATO in the early 2000s. And then there was this pressure point placed on Ukraine from roughly around 2007, 2008, the question of Ukraine's accession to NATO. And, you know, I want to close this sort of storyline, Brian, just by saying one of the reasons why it's important to understand Ukraine becoming a fulcrum after 2007, 2008, because it was in 2007 that Vladimir Putin, head of government of Russia, goes to the Munich Security Conference. And at the Munich Security Conference, he says, there should be no single master in the world. It's the first time the Russian government has come out there openly and said that we don't accept the U.S. international order. Now, the reason this is important is from 1991 till roughly 2006, 2007, Russia was very much part of the Western international order. In fact, Russia became a member of the G8. It became the eighth country in the G7. And also Russia was participating with NATO. There were very much this Russia-NATO alliance that was developing, which was, you know, to people like me, fascinating that NATO, which had been constructed effectively to constrain the Soviet Union, was now drawing Russia into its orbit. What's the point of NATO when you have the United Nations? If everybody's going to join NATO, then why have the United Nations? Well, the reason you want NATO with everybody in it is that's an instrument of U.S. power, whereas the United Nations at least nominally or notionally, is an instrument of all the 193 member nations. So when Putin in 2007 says no single master and starts to break with the Western-led alliance, it's then that Ukraine becomes a fulcrum. And we've gone now from 2007 to the present into a very dangerous situation. Yeah, thank you so much for that history. I think it's critically important. And... Right after Putin said there was no single master at the 2008 Bucharest meeting of NATO, the U.S. announced, well, we're going to include Georgia, another former Soviet republic, part of the Soviet Union, and Ukraine. And of course, Ukraine was the second largest Soviet republic population-wise after Russia in the Soviet Union. We're going to include Georgia and Ukraine into NATO. That was in 2008. And right after that, Russian troops move into Georgia. And it's really quite clear that this is a red line. Why is it a red line? Help the audience who doesn't really understand the history, the geography, the politics of Ukraine or earlier Georgia. These are the red lines I mean, Russia undoubtedly did not want Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, former Soviet republics, so close to St. Petersburg to join NATO. But okay, they, it wasn't a red line, but Georgia and Ukraine were red lines. Let's just talk about why. Yeah, this is an interesting question. And it's an interesting question in the field of international relations. You know, there's a phrase that goes back to the Potsdam Conference held in the dying days of World War II, when the major powers, the Soviets, the United States, Britain, and so on, sat around and said, well, how are we going to understand the post-Second World War dispensation? What's it going to look like? And there was a discussion about, quote-unquote, spheres of influence. Now, obviously, the term spheres of influence predates 
Potsdam, goes back to the Congress of Vienna in 1815 and so on. This term has, has a long history. But for our purposes, we got to come to what they were discussing at Potsdam when they were sitting and having this important conversation about, well, you know, who's going to influence whom in this new era? That how do we maintain the peace, as it were, after a very difficult and dangerous war? I mean, a ghastly war. Not only did this war contain within it the Holocaust, but it also contained within it the bombardment of civilian areas in cities and so on. It's, it's actually quite forgotten that World War II was the principal experience for people of mass bombardment of civilian areas from the air, you know, where you were really unprotected by your own military. I mean, entire cities were wiped out, the firebombing of Dresden, the bombing of London, and in the eastern sector, I mean, the way in which the Japanese destroyed Chinese cities is quite remarkable. I mean, in terms of the span of world history, it was almost like the sacking of a city at the end of a war, except the war hadn't ended. You were able to destroy civilian areas, kill you know, millions of people around the world, civilians who had no part in this war. So there was a real concern at Potsdam. How do we, quote unquote, maintain the peace, even though there are adversaries and there are problems between the Soviet Union and the British? I mean, for God's sake, you had Churchill sitting across the table from Stalin, you know, no friendship between these two people. And yet how to maintain the peace? So this is a very important thing for people to understand that there was a sensibility. Look, we're going to have a conflict that's going to continue. We don't agree with each other and so on. Nonetheless, let's find a way to, in fact, manage the process after this war ends. And they did draw a line, a sphere of influence. You know, they did say to the Soviets that, look, you can't mess around in France and in Italy and in Greece, in fact. You can't mess around. This is our sphere, Western sphere of influence. And in my opinion, I have second thoughts about this. The Soviets basically withdrew uh, getting involved in, say, the communist movements in France and in Italy and decisively in Greece, where they didn't back the communists at crucial points. So the Soviets kept the bargain, saying that, OK, the other side of the line, that's your situation. You know, we're going to have various contests and problems between each other, but we'll basically honor the fact that that's your arena. On the same end, the West was supposed to honor the fact that countries close to the Soviet Union going to be its sphere of influence. Now, you got to understand that the Russian people as a people have a long history of facing external aggression. Most recently, of course, when they were talking about this was the way in which the West, one way or the other, egged on the Nazis to go into the Soviet Union for a brutal war against the Soviet people. Millions of people killed. The siege of the Battle of Stalingrad, now quite forgotten by young people and so on. There's a real sense of, you know, of fear, foreboding that the West was going to attack Russia. This is a very old fear that is there. And, you know, apparently this fear of influence agreement, why Stalin agrees to it, is to, in a sense, quell that fear, to give the sensibility that, okay, we're going to be somewhat protected from having the Russian people attacked. Well, it's quite clear when you look at the language after the Soviet Union collapsed, it's quite clear that there was a feeling, a sensibility emerged in the West that Russia was going to be absorbed in the Western scheme of things. You know, they organized the new Russia under the leadership of Boris Yeltsin. They organized Russia in the image of, of a kind of laboratory of neoliberalism. You know, if Chile now 50 years ago, the coup 
if Chile was the laboratory of neoliberalism, Russia was also a much greater scale laboratory for a kind of neoliberal politics, a globalized politics. In fact, you could say that it's the United States that produced the oligarchs in Russia. They produced that whole setup of these people who were able to take public assets and privatize them. So this anxiety that is there in Russian history of being attacked mustn't be underestimated. You know, I don't think it's some sort of pathology that the Russians have, but it's got to be put on the table. And certainly when it was put on the table that Georgia and Ukraine were going to be brought into NATO, there was a great deal of anxiety that this would mean that Russia could be easily attacked, that Moscow could be easily attacked. NATO weaponry would be within striking distance of major cities in Russia. People should know that the geography of Russia is thus that most of the major cities are at its western end. And there's a genuine fear that if you put intermediate missiles in, in Ukraine or in Georgia, they can fire at Moscow and Moscow will not be able to defend itself. This is the legitimate fear that the Russians have. Yeah. And there's another element of this. You know, there's the geography of it, which is Russia and Ukraine share this huge border. And the U.S., abandon the Intermediate Nuclear Range Treaty that Gorbachev and Reagan signed in 1986. And that treaty took out of Europe those kind of missiles, the ones you're referring to, VJ, which had a flight time of six minutes to their target. And in the early 1980s, when the this is what created the anti-nuclear movement in Europe, was that because Europe knew if there's a nuclear war, it's going to be Europe that will be basically incinerated, those weapons the Russians, the Soviets couldn't defend against. So they were placed all around the Soviet Union in 1981, 82. The Soviets really felt the U.S. was moving towards war. All of those missiles targeted every Soviet political office. It wasn't simply military targets, it was political offices. And there's this mass movement that's born in Europe and in the United States. In, in the United States in 1982, a million people demonstrated in Central Park on June 12, 1982, demanding a nuclear freeze, meaning don't have a nuclear war because everything felt like we were moving towards nuclear war. So Reagan and Gorbachev signed this agreement in 1986 to get rid of these kind of weapons. So the U.S. abandons the treaty in the last couple of years under Trump. And so those weapons are now, quote, legal again. And if Ukraine has this long border with Russia, it means those missiles, if Ukraine's brought into NATO, will be pointed towards Moscow, for sure. No question about it. But there's another element, and this is that Ukraine, before 1922, before the creation of a Soviet socialist Republic of Ukraine that was part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics that was first signed in treaty in 1922 and then constitutionally validated in 1924. Before that, Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire. And from the point of view of Russia and Russians, Kiev, like Moscow, was considered almost like sort of one and the same. I mean, we have a difference of opinion with Vladimir Putin, who blames Lenin and Lenin's position on the national question for the creation of a Ukrainian state, you know, Putin has a, a different attitude certainly than we do here on the socialist program. But that said, there's no question that in Russia, Kiev and 
that entire area, including, of course, the Donbass, was considered Russian. So it's not like the U.S. would be placing these kind of missiles with a flight time of five minutes in some faraway land, some far off or foreign country. From the Russian point of view, and I think this is also why Ukraine was always a red line, in a way it would be putting U.S. missiles sort of not even on Russia's border, but almost in Russia from a psychological point of view. Again, we don't agree with Putin on his position on Ukraine's status, but that's not my point here. My point is, from a Russian point of view, Ukraine had to always be a red line because of the geography, the military thing, but also because of the way Ukraine is viewed inside of Russia. You know, yes, that's absolutely true. But I also wanted to mention one other thing, Brian, which often gets forgotten, which is that, you know, well, global warming might change matters, but until global warming has happens, Russian Navy had only two warm water ports of importance. One was in Sevastopol in Crimea, and the other was in Tartus in Latakia in Syria. These were the two major warm water ports where Russia used to keep its naval fleet during the long winter. I mean, all the other ports freeze up. Now, again, this is changing with climate change, but for now, this is the reality. And interestingly, when you discuss things with people in Moscow, you know, people at strategic centers and so on, and you talk to them about why they intervened in Crimea in 2014, and then why they intervened in Syria in 2015. You know, these are interventions happening roughly at the same time. Many of them raised the issue of the fact they felt that the West wanted to seize from Russia its two warm water ports at around the same time, that these were not, you know, a separate instances of quote-unquote expanding democracy, one in Ukraine and one in Syria, that there was a sensibility inside the security establishment in Russia that somehow the West wanted to seize the two places where Russia had a warm water ports for its navy. So in that sense, the intervention that takes place in Crimea can also be seen in a much broader perspective, a kind of geostrategic perspective from the Russian point of view, that they worried that you know they're going to lose this, this important naval base apart from the emotional resonance of the fact that there's a, an understanding that these places are, you know, have Russian populations and so on. There's also this underlying side to it. The reason I'm bringing this up is because, you know, much has been said about the absorption of Crimea and parts of the Donbass after 2014, but it's not been put into the broader picture of what happens to Russia in this period. See, in this same period, three things are going on regarding Russia that are important. Number one, Russia begins to become a major energy supplier to the West. This is a consequence of the US wars against Iraq first, and then Libya in 2011. You've got to understand that Libya was the provider of energy for much of Europe, but the NATO war against Libya, to my mind, a horrendous war against the Libyan people. The NATO war against Libya, in fact, removes energy sources from Europe, a major energy source of Europe. It's interesting that then the conflict over Ukraine by NATO removes another energy source for Europe, which is Russia, which becomes the predominant energy source for many countries, especially Germany. 
So the first development is the increase of Russian energy that comes into Europe in this period, uh, particularly after the war, NATO's war against Libya. The second is you start to see a close interaction between Russia and China at this time. When Russia and China start to firstly, you know, clean up their border dispute, the Russia-China border dispute, which goes back to, you know, well, maybe it goes back to 1949, in fact, earlier. They begin to sort out the border dispute. Trade begins to increase between the two countries and so on. And they begin to integrate some of their strategic thinking. That's the second important thing I think that has to be put on the table. Well, the third thing in this period is that, of course, this is of great anxiety to the United States because the United States is not worried about Ukraine merely for Ukraine. You know, the history of Georgia is very interesting. They forget about Georgia after the 2008 conflict. It's not that there's an enduring, there are no Georgian flags flying all over the place. But the United States begins to see that this integration of China with Russia begins to see that this integration of, of Russia and China with Europe, all of these are threatening directly the strategic interests of the United States. And you begin to see a ramping up of pressure, which includes what you mentioned earlier, the United States government withdrawal from the Intermediate Nuclear Missiles Treaty. There was an earlier withdrawal, just to put it on the table, again, unilateral withdrawal by the United States, by George W. Bush from the Ballistic Missile Treaty. You know, that's an important withdrawal because it removes the possibility for a lot of these countries to defend themselves. So first, you cannot defend yourself, you know, and then missiles available at your doorstep. So putting this in context, this third part also brings in Taiwan because it's around this same period that the U.S. ramps up pressure. Taiwan and China have the similar issue as Ukraine and Russia, because Beijing is very clear that if Taiwan, quote-unquote, becomes part of some direct strategic alliance of the United States, the U.S. starts to base weapons in Taiwan, this is going to be a great threat to the, the genuine security of the Chinese people. So I just want to put these three things on the agenda, Brian, because... You've got to see this. Too many people look at this just in a Ukrainian perspective, as if this is a conflict of and about Ukraine itself. But in fact, Ukraine is actually sitting on a series of dynamics that impact the whole world. So Vijay, what you're saying, basically, what we see emerging in 2014 and 15, the war in Syria and the war or the what happens after the coup d'etat in February 2014 that overthrows the Yanukovych government in Ukraine, which was a neutral government. It wasn't anti-West, but it was neutral. It said, we're not going to take Ukraine into NATO. The U.S. and Germany and the EU countries, they're all want to overthrow the government. They do. They rely on fascist militias to do it. That's 2014. And then basically the Putin government says, well, Russia is going to have or sponsor basically a referendum so that the people in Crimea can decide, do you want to be part of Ukraine, which now has this right-wing anti-Russian government, or do you want to be with us, Russia? And most of the people in Crimea are Russian-speaking. Crimea was always this important Soviet military base in the Black Sea. It was only transferred to Ukraine 
sovereignty in 1954 after the death of Stalin when the Khrushchev government was coming into formation in the USSR. But at that time, it was really an administrative thing. It wasn't a big deal because Ukraine and, the so and Russia were part of the same country, the Soviet Union. So if Crimea was now under Ukrainian authority rather than Russian authority, it didn't matter. It was still the Soviet military base. So if that base had become a NATO base, that means that not only would Russia lose its warm water port, the one that's really attached to the Soviet Union, not the one in Syria, but that base would become a NATO base, right? I mean, if Ukraine had sovereignty over Crimea and that was the biggest Russian base, then it becomes NATO. So it's in all ways unacceptable to the Russian government. And again, I think it's important what you're saying, and I really want the audience to think about this. It's in this sort of big geostrategic moment in contemporary history, because it also involves Europe becoming more dependent on Russian energy, Russia and China becoming closer. And one of the things that has happened with this since February 2022, when the Russians came in, is that the opposition to NATO within Europe has been basically muted, nullified. NATO is stronger, meaning it's more, it has more countries. There's less anti-NATO skepticism in Europe. Finland and Sweden are now part of NATO. I want to read to you, Vijay, something from the New York Times. It's from this week, July 11th. People can go. It's an opinion piece, but the Times decided to publish it, so it's not insignificant. And it dovetails with what you talked about with us on the last time you were on the show, which was NATO's real role and the U.S. view of NATO as an instrument to maintain control or domination over European countries so they wouldn't become more of an ally economically, politically, or militarily with Russia. I want to read this to you and for our audience and then get your comments. NATO from its origins was never primarily concerned with aggregating military power. Fielding 100 divisions at the Cold War height, a small fraction of Warsaw Pact manpower, that was the Soviet military alliance, the organization could not be counted on to repel a Soviet invasion, and even the continent's nuclear weapons were under Washington, D.C. control. Rather, it, meaning NATO, set out to bind Western Europe to a vaster project of a U.S.-led world order in which American protection served as a lever to obtain concessions on other issues like trade and monetary policy. In that mission, it, NATO, has proved remarkably successful. Now, this is, these authors are not complaining about this. They think it's good. They like it. They think, yeah, it worked. But that's the point you were making on our show and elsewhere, that NATO was never about defense, but it was about control. Go ahead. Yeah, NATO was about control. And it's interesting that this opinion piece effectively validates that. The problem is that the world has changed dramatically since the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. See, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the United States could put something on the table. You know, initially it was the Marshall Plan. After that, it was various forms of multinational capital investment. Then it was access to the U.S. market and so on. 
these things are either less available today or they are not as attractive. You know, for instance, U.S. public investment, state investment is simply not available to European countries. The Biden administration doesn't have the finances to come in and say, you know, we're going to build a port for you or we're going to build a bridge or we're going to build a university. You know, those days are long gone. The U.S. ruling class or at least the economic sections of the ruling class not interested in paying taxes into the exchequer because they're not interested in that. It's very unlikely that they're going to allow investments of a big kind to be made against the future. You know, the government is simply not allowed to borrow and so on. So that public investment is not available. Transnational corporations not investing so much in Europe. You can see this decline. They are investing elsewhere. Of course, they're not, not investing in Europe, but not at the scale that Europe requires, which is why 17 countries joined the Belt and Road Initiative before this conflict intensified. And finally, when you think about what the United States can give Europe, what it's able to provide for Europe, it's certainly not able to provide the kind of technical assistance at a high level that it used to be able to. The debate in Germany is instructive when the United States said that, look, Germany can't use Huawei 5G towers. It was clear to the Germans that if they weren't going to get 5G towers from Huawei, there was really nobody else on the market at a good price point able to provide this new technology for Germany. So by the way, Germany didn't ban Huawei. It simply said we can't take the 5G towers. There are Huawei tools used all across Germany. So there is a sense that some of this desire for Europe to have this integration because there are benefits from the United States. Some of this is an anachronistic understanding of the world. You know, there's an anachronism in an opinion piece like that. Now, rather than say, join NATO, stay with NATO, and we can get you this investment, we can get you this technology, we can get you access to the US market, which is not as resilient as it used to be. Now there's a kind of domination effect at work. There's a kind of bullying. You know, if you're not going to be with us, we're going to abandon you. If you're not going to be with us, we're going to muscle you politically. You know, it's, it's interesting the way in which U.S. diplomats in this recent period have been traveling not only around Europe, but around the world, trying to basically force countries to back their position on Ukraine, to send arms to Ukraine, to get for your NATO countries to the 2% military spending. There's a way in which it's not with the carrot. You know, they don't have the carrots anymore. The U.S. market is, as I said, not available to many of these countries any longer. Now they use a stick. And the stick is often diplomatic, which is why when Anthony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, goes to South Africa, sits down beside the South African Foreign Minister Naledi Pandor, Naledi Pandor, in the presence of Blinken, says we will not be bullied anymore. She uses the word bullied. There are no carrots on the table, Anthony. All you're giving me is the stick. You're telling me I have to do this because you're the United States of America. And so I said, there's something frustratingly anachronistic about these opinions, including of texts written by the Atlantic Council, which is effectively the think tank of NATO. When you read the text from the Atlantic Council, they live as if they are in the 1960s with the United States prepared for Marshall Plan number two and so on. 
The U.S. is simply hollowed out. There is no Marshall Plan number two. The U.S., a population whose wages have been stagnated for decades and are living on credit, simply don't have the market that they used to be able to generate to absorb goods and services from elsewhere. So there's a kind of anachronism. This U.S. elite is living in a world where they're unable or unwilling to look at reality and understand it for what it is. At the end of World War II, and as you said earlier in the show, when the U.S. was trying to figure out, well, what is, what's the post-World War II order look like? Part of the goal was not to have another inter-imperialist war like World War II or World War I, where in the case of World War II, 100 million people die, and all of the, the cities of the colonial powers lay in smoldering ruins, and that allowed and triggered or certainly became a catalyst for the anti-colonial struggles of people in Asia and Africa, the Middle East, everywhere, in fact. The U.S. wanted to prevent the scourge of war and also, from their point of view, they wanted to stop revolution because revolution was another outcome. So when you see the motto on the United Nations, it says to end the scourge of war, at least meaning the inter-imperialist wars that were so destructive. So at that time, I just want to give people this little quick history. At that time, the U.S. constituted 4% of the world's population, but had 50% of the world's production. So this enormous privilege. And then Bretton Woods, the Bretton Woods Conference in New Hampshire basically stipulates a dollar will be the reserve currency of the world. So these enormous privileges— and at that time, as you're saying, and I just want to fill in the blank a little bit, the U.S. was able to offer the other imperialist powers, including the defeated enemies in World War II, Japan and Germany, look, we're not going to crush you. We're not going to treat you like the, the victors treated Germany after World War I. We're going to let you revive. Your ruling classes will get rich again. And part of it will be we're going to give you access to the world market, including to the U.S. market, so you can get rich again. But the precondition is that you're going to follow our lead. You're part of a united front against a bigger enemy, communism, revolution. You're going to follow us. So what you're basically saying, Vijay, is that here we are in 2020 or 2015 or 2010, whenever we want to use that point, the U.S. doesn't have that kind of enormous sway in the world market and thus it has less to offer, fewer carrots to anybody, including the other imperialist powers. So it's basically just the stick. So for South Africa, but also for Germany in a way. Although, you know, Germany, of course, is an imperial power with lots of other benefits. Where does that take us? I mean, the U.S. is determined not to become like empires of old, an empire that has declined and gone into the sunset. It means to stay where it is as leading the, the world, dominating the world, being the hegemon. And here we have active war and expansion of NATO. Sweden and Finland, right on Russia's border, basically, now part of NATO. An ongoing war that the U.S. doesn't want to end. I mean, it doesn't seem to me the U.S. The US is quite content with the war grinding on for quite a bit longer. Where is it going? Where are we heading? Well, yeah, you know, firstly, I would say that it's unlikely that the United States is going to come to terms with reality. In other words, that the ruling class in the U.S. is going to accept the fact that the world has changed and that the, the Chinese, for instance, play a major role in the world economy. 
it's of course true that U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was in Beijing, in Shanghai. She met people. She tried to say that, look, we don't have a permanent or total conflict. You know, we have areas of disagreement, but let's continue trade and so on. As a softening of tone, whether that is a change of policy or, or not, we shall see. But the first thing is for the U.S. ruling class to come to terms with the fact that it isn't the most powerful economy in the world. It has the most powerful and deadly military, but it's not the most powerful economy. And indeed, having the most powerful economy is attractive to other countries because a most powerful economy, Chinese, for instance, now are able to provide investments of different kinds. They're able to provide technical support and to some extent or to a great extent for some countries to provide a market for goods and services. So there is an attraction by dint of being a major market, of being a country that can invest in you and so on. So that's the first thing. The ruling class really in the United States needs to come to terms with the major changes taking place in the world. But I also want to say something about the war in Ukraine itself. Firstly, this NATO summit, July 11, 12, took place in Vilnius, Lithuania. It's important for people to know that Lithuania was sending weapons to the Kiev government before Russia entered past the Donbass line on the 24th of February. Lithuania has been arming this government for a very long time. They have that kind of relationship. I think it's important to recognize that. Secondly, 28 foreign countries have been arming the Ukraine government in this period since the 24th of February. 28 countries. Of them, 25 are NATO members. It's very clear to most people in the world that NATO has a direct hand in this conflict. This is not a conflict where NATO is a bystander threatening to get involved, but NATO is actively involved, inclusive of the fact that the United States has announced it's going to send illegal cluster weapons, cluster munitions into Ukraine. Stunningly, the Ukrainian defense minister called them liberation weapons. You know, this is the kind of terminology we have today. It's a cruel cruel use of language to call cluster bombs liberation weapons. But it's not as if NATO has been a bystander. In fact, let's go back to a little bit of the history of why this war seems to continue. Right when it began on the 24th of February, right when it began, the Russians and the Ukrainians opened discussions to close down the hostilities. These discussions took place at the border with Belarus, and these discussions took place in Ankara, in Turkey. And they seem to be bearing fruit. They apparently had some sort of principles on the table of agreement to, to at least have a ceasefire and open discussions and so on. At which point, Boris Johnson, at the time Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, goes to Kiev on behalf effectively of the NATO countries and tells Zelensky, we're with you till the end. Don't make any concessions to the Russians. You need to be able to take all your territory back. It's a prestige issue and so on, and therefore prolong the war. I mean, this is a fact that's going to be forgotten, Brian. It's not going to be talked about much that, in fact, there was a near peace agreement. In fact, it is not clear that Russia was interested in annexing all of Ukraine. In fact, when Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, took an African delegation to see Mr. Putin just last month, Mr. Putin, during that conversation, said, do you remember when Russian forces pulled out of the vicinity of Kiev? He said, that was not a defeat. We were not defeated. We were not routed in the battlefield. We pulled out because that was part of the agreement we came up with with the Ukraine government in Ankara. 
that was actually an interesting revelation. Now, I don't know whether it's true or not. The fact is that it is a reflection or at least a memory that in the early period of March 2022, both the Russians and the Ukrainians seem to be negotiating in good faith in Ankara and in Belarus, and that has now been undermined. And now the appetite for negotiation is almost null. In fact, it was interesting to watch Mr. Zelensky in Vilanus, where he spoke alongside the Lithuanian head of government. They stood together. You know, he recognized the fact that Lithuania has been a major backer of Ukraine, despite being such a small country and so on. At that speech, he basically talked quite bitterly about Ukraine not being immediately taken into NATO. It's interesting because effectively what I'm trying to say is that Ukraine is a member of NATO, Brian, effectively. NATO is backing them in this war. NATO has an active presence in this war. It's providing diplomatic support, providing weapons support. And it is said to Ukraine at this Vilnius summit, it has said to Ukraine, you will be a member of NATO. Just let the hostilities end because we cannot take a country that's in the middle of a war into a military alliance, which is, I think, a relatively reasonable attitude, by the way, by the major powers in NATO. But they're also being duplicitous because when they say something like, well, that will trigger Article 5, you've already in many ways you know, operated on the assumption that Article 5 has been triggered. I sat through two hours of debate in Berlin at the Bundestag, a very interesting debate about the NATO summit in Vilnius. And I have to say that almost every political party at that debate spoke on behalf of Ukraine entering NATO. Now, the Social Democrats, who are the ones in power, Olaf Schulz's party, said that we have to wait till hostilities end. It was only one member of Die Linke, Sevim Dagdalen, who came to the, the podium and talked about NATO being a destructive force. She talked about the destruction of Yugoslavia, the destruction of Afghanistan, the destruction of Libya. She said that it is a myth to call NATO a defensive alliance. It's an aggressive alliance which destroys very many parts of the world. It's only one member of parliament in the German Bundestag who took that position. So, you know, there's complete unanimity of opinion in many of these countries to pursue this conflict, to, to back NATO, as they say, till the death of the last Ukrainian. But I think it is also, again, just to repeat this, it is an act of some duplicity for the West at the same time to say, well, you know, NATO is not involved. This is effectively a NATO-Russia conflict without the legality of Ukraine being part of NATO. As we start to wrap up, Vijay, I know you don't own a crystal ball, so I'm asking you for prognostications and predictions. And as Casey Stengel, the former manager of the New York Yankees said, I never make predictions, especially about the future. So it's a risky enterprise. But I do want to get your sense, in all seriousness, of where, where things are going, because we can kind of now see that a path has been outlined, and there's a lot of pressure to stay on it, not to deviate from it. And that is this growing conflict with Russia. The U.S. feels that I think that the conflict in Ukraine has allowed them to close ranks in Europe, where France and Germany in the past were very dubious about including Ukraine into NATO. Most of those doubts or skepticism have been overcome by the nature of the conflict. 
In 2018, the U.S. reorganized its military doctrine. The war on terror suddenly was no longer a big deal. It was passe. Now it's major power conflict. So the U.S. is prioritizing getting ready for war with Russia and with China. And it's not just doctrinal. Like when you look at contingency planning, the placement of troops, resources, it's all happening. We're watching in real time preparation for what would amount to World War III if it were to actually happen. And it seems to me that the U.S., if it succeeds in Ukraine, just like it once it succeeded in Libya and destroying Libya, that accelerated the tendency to basically go for broke in Syria. The mantra became Assad must go, Assad must go, because Gaddafi had been destroyed, literally liquidated. So the outcome here, the stakes are very high. And the Chinese undoubtedly view it the same way. I'm sure they weren't thrilled about Russia going to war with Ukraine. Ukraine was part of the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm sure the Chinese would have preferred a different path. But once the Russians did it, the Chinese, even if they're not for it and have their own peace plan, they weren't condemning Russia because they probably view it like this, that if, if the U.S. succeeds, Taiwan and China's next. The war lobby will intensify. So when you think about how World War I started, there was a lot of miscalculations in World War I. You know, Barbara Tuchman wrote her famous book, The March of Folly. As Marxists, we don't view contemporary wars as simply the mistakes of, of leaders, but there are mistakes of leaders. There's a lot of folly, a lot of miscalculation that is the lead up to war. When you look at the big picture here, it seems very dangerous in terms of where we're actually heading. Africa, Asia, the Middle East, most of the people of the world are not for international conflict. They're certainly not for global war. They may actually feel there's some advantage to the breakup of a U.S. unipolar world, the creation of multipolarity such that they're not just being dictated to. That's another important dynamic of contemporary politics. But when you, if you're like thinking, okay, we're 2023, what are we looking at, say, in 2030? Like, because the Republicans and Democrats are addicted to this path. They're connected to it. They're, they're not going to change. Yeah, Brian, three points on this, I think. The first one, in May, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres gave an interview to the Spanish daily newspaper El País, where he said something that actually stopped me. I was interested in what Guterres said. Guterres said that, look, there's a Brazilian peace proposal. There are peace proposals coming from the African countries. There's a Chinese peace proposal. He said all this is fine, but he says there's no path to peace in Ukraine. And the reason there's no path to peace is he said both sides think they can win. I think that's an important acknowledgement coming from somebody, a high official of the United Nations. What does he mean by that? Well, number one, it's not that the Russians believe that they can take Kiev and, you know, hold all of Ukraine. I don't think he is referring to that. I mean, the Russians have made it pretty clear that Ukraine is not their objective. Their objective is to hold the Donbass. Their objective is to hold Crimea and to hold the land bridge through Mariupol into Donbass, as well as to what they call denazify Ukraine. Those are their objectives. This is different from annexation of Ukraine. I don't think that's on the cards. From the perspective of Zelensky, 
I think initially it was to manage the conflict with Russia. Now it's become to take back the lands, which is highly unlikely to take back Crimea, to take back Donbass and so on. It's a highly unlikely situation for the West. The West has made it clear, as U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said in Kiev a year or so ago, that the game is to weaken Russia. They've made that clear as an objective. Again, highly unlikely. It's a nuclear power. It's a major power. It has allies around the world. Unlikely that it's going to be weakened. So Guterres' statement that in El País, which is that both sides think they can win, I think is a chilling statement. It shows that the availability of a path to peace is not there. Now, let's say that's point number one. Point number two, I was just in Germany, interacted with a number of different political forces. I was interested to learn that the German elites, the bourgeoisie in Germany, the German capitalist class, has a very much contradictory situation now. And the general sentiment, it seems to me, from this class, what I learned was that they said, okay, you know, the United States, the German government made us de-risk, decouple, break from our markets in Russia. You know, Germany had a major, German capital had a major frontal policy in terms of investments in Russia. Okay, so the Germans said, we've cut that. But our red line is we can't cut with China. That is our red line. We cannot de-risk and decouple from China. So this is not going to happen. There is a therefore an amazing contradiction to think about within Europe, which is that European capital is feeling hemmed in. They are feeling like they are being dictated to politically, that their economic agenda is not being allowed to dominate, that there's a political suffocation of their economic aims. And I think this is interesting. This is going to create for Europe, I think, severe pressures inside the ruling bloc in the years to come. In Germany, certainly, but maybe also in France. It was interesting to see members of the German conservative wing, the Christian Democratic Party and so on, including the far right. But mainly, it's that kind of the old party of capital, you know, the party of Angela Merkel. There, there's a hesitancy to continue on with these conflicts because the blowback against capital, German capital, has been already quite significant. Now, it's important to say the far right, by the way, is not anti-NATO. In fact, the far right, the Alliance for Deutschland, is very much a pro-NATO party, wants Germany to increase military spending to 2%. People should have no illusions. Far rights are not quote-unquote skeptic of imperialism. They are sometimes the real handmaidens when push comes to shove. But the party of capital has to deal with these contradictions. You know, they are more at the level of the contradiction. So the second point is that capital within at least Europe, if not later in the United States, I think is going to start putting some pressure back against the political class, saying that necessarily our own economic objectives may not be met by this pathway forward, you know, that we certainly cannot de-risk and decouple from China, which is why Janet Yellen goes to China and says, hey, listen, let's keep trading, okay? We have some problems, but let's keep trading. There is a lot of pressure from the capitalist class saying, look, it's suicidal for us if this path continues. And the third point, coming to the global south, the appetite in the global south for the continuation, not of this war, this war everybody's against, but also, and this is important, the continuation of the old neo-colonial structures, um, the appetite for that continuation seems to be diminishing greatly. 
so that one sees even far right governments the government of narendra modi where the foreign minister jay shankar was asked about this suggestion made by some us congress people that india should be part of nato plus mr jay shankar told a news program nato plus he said no we are not interested and he said we are against the nato template that was the phrase he used we are against the nato template that's an interesting development to see in the global south major country like india perhaps the weakest link in the brics block brian it's not like a major stronghold of of multipolarity or anything like that india is very much a balancing act between the west and and the south but nonetheless here's jay shankar saying we are against the nato template we don't want these kind of divisions of the world and so on it goes against globalization so that i think is the third set of contradictions that we're going to see unfold in time is we're going to look in august see what happens at the brics summit to be held in south africa very important to pay attention to that it's very important inclusive to go back to the second point to pay attention to what capital is saying you know what are the the business newspapers saying are we going to see gaps now between say the financial times and its opinion of wars like this and let's say the new york times which is a major cheerleader for this war so there are contradictions i don't have a crystal ball but what we as marxists do look at are not we don't look at clarities in a crystal ball we look at the contradictions and see how these might unfold vj i want to encourage people to start to follow tricontinental the brics summit is coming up you know it's really important for progressive forces to find reliable left socialist anti-imperialist sources that are not based on rhetoric or shrill rhetoric but based on like real facts and and analysis and perspective like tricontinental does so real quick before we end if people want to become a regular reader of what you're producing what the other writers and researchers are doing in tricontinental how do they do that the best thing and i'm i'm very grateful to you brian for saying all that but the best thing is to go to thetricontinental.org it's very easy to find on the web and you can subscribe to all our material it's all basically available to you in a number of languages so come and join us and you know join the conversation vijay prashad thank you so much thanks a lot brian always a pleasure You've been listening to the Socialist Program with Brian Becker where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and watch video episodes of our in-depth show The Real Story every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com/thesocialistprogram and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.